Hello, my name is Meg. Welcome to the Unedited Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. The goal of this podcast is to help you both develop and enjoy the habit of daily Bible reading and prayer. About 20 years ago, at a very low spot in my life, I was convicted to begin this simple discipline, and I looked up years down the road to see how God had used this habit to heal deep places in my heart and do incredible things in my life. And so over the years, it's really become my greatest passion to help others get to know Jesus through His Word and through His presence. Through this podcast, I'm hoping to help you see the Word of God with fresh eyes, to learn to slow down with your Bible, and ultimately to fall in love with Jesus and to fall in love with your Bible. So thank you so much for joining me today. I am so grateful that you are here. Hello, happy Friday. I'm truly so grateful you're here. And if you're hearing this on the Friday it's released, I am in the Dominican Republic helping a team of 26 people build a church on Sunday. We are going to do a dedication service and then a crusade type service. So please pray for us. We would covet your prayers. And again, I'm just so thankful for this opportunity. I wanted to Uh, Just remind you that Overflow, The Fine Art of Cultivating Joy and Sorrow, the second book in the unedited collection is available on Amazon. And I wanted to just say thank you to Lori White for this review. She wrote, wow, very edifying and anointed. Overflow is exactly what I needed. This would make a great women's Bible study or for home connect group discussion. So thank you, Lori, for those kind words. You guys know that if we ever buy anything online, if we order food from a restaurant, if we listen to a podcast, if we go visit an attraction, we check reviews. And reviews are part of spreading a message in this day and age. So thank you, Lori. And if you would consider leaving a review on either a book or on the podcast, it would mean so much. I would be so, so grateful. Today, I just want to put out a simple reminder that God is a God of restoration, and I am really excited to read you today's unedited journal entry. I finished it about 20 minutes ago, 30 minutes ago maybe, and I've been working on it all week. It's been such an encouragement to me, and just one of those reasons that I love, love, love the Bible. God is a God of restoration. Joel wrote in Joel 2 and said, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, I will restore to you the years that the canker worm has eaten. And this verse has been such a key in my own life. I remember in an altar setting many years ago, I was really just consumed with regret and lamenting the fact that I had spent so many years healing. And God spoke this verse into my spirit and impressed on my heart so strongly, that's like it never happened. I can do more with the rest of your life if you will put all the pieces in my hands. And I will say, I believe plan A is God's highest and best. Life without failure, life without mistakes is God's first priority. But we all fail in some way at some point in our lives. We fail every day. And no matter where our quote-unquote failure falls on this scale of little to great, God is a God of restoration. And when we put those 
pieces of our failures and our shortcomings and our limitations in his hand. He is a restorer. David wrote in Psalm 23, he restoreth my soul. And in Psalm 51, after failure and repentance, David prayed, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Merriam-Webster defines restore as give back, return, to put or bring back into existence or use, to bring back to or put back into a former or original state, renew, or to put again in possession of something. And I love this definition from the Cambridge Dictionary. To return something or someone to an earlier good condition or position. And whatever your path has looked like, whatever has gone differently than you planned, however life has not been scripted according to your expectations, or maybe if you failed God, he's a restorer and he can restore your life. And not only is God a restorer, but he expects us to be restorers. If you know someone whose life has been marked by failure or struggle or sin, God expects us to be part of the restorative process in your life. In Galatians 6, 1, it says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. If you need restoration, God will restore you. And if you know somebody who needs restoration, God wants to use you in his plan for their life. And as I'm just saying this, I'm reminded of the story of Lazarus. Lazarus had died. Jesus says it's for the glory of God. And Jesus says the words, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out of that grave. But he turns to the crowd and he says, loose him and let him go. Life has been restored to Lazarus, but now it's the people that are gathered there in that crowd who are going to take off the grave clothes and restore him to freedom. And so God can restore you. You could show me the most broken person on the face of this planet. I won't give any qualifiers. And I would look them in the eye and say, God can restore your life. God can heal your heart. Because he is a restorer and he's just that good. And again, let's partner with him in the process of restoration in the lives of those around us. Today, I'm going to share a hot off the presses journal entry called There Was Jesus. I originally started working on this about a week ago. I think it was last Sunday. And just this very simple phrase sort of jumped off the page at me one little sentence in John chapter 21 and it's kind of grown from there throughout this week and I want to share this with you today there was Jesus this morning I started reading John 21 and in just the first few verses God ministered to me so deeply John shares the story of how Jesus showed himself again to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Verse 2 lists the cast of characters. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. Peter says, I go fishing to the group and they say they'd like to go along. 
This scene unfolds after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It plays out after Peter swore and denied Jesus. It's scripted after Thomas has doubted, after they had slept in the garden and cut off ears and ran away in fear. Matthew wrote, But all this was done, that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. This scene is after things have not gone as expected, after they've all seen their own inherent weakness, after they've seen their propensity to run away when the pressure is high and the heat is up. This is after Jesus rose, but things are different. And now their fishing trip is not as expected. Once they decide to go on a fishing expedition, the Bible says, They went and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. Some have said that when Peter said, I go fishing, he was returning back to his old life, his previous line of work. Scripture really isn't clear. He may just have led this group on a fishing trip as therapy after the crazy unfolding events. We don't know. But I can say one thing with some confidence. Peter and the others likely expected to catch some fish. Or at very least hoped to catch some fish. I've lived with a fisherman long enough to know that expectation and hope are always present when someone says, I go fishing. And three of these men are not just novice anglers. They were professional fishermen who had left nets to follow Jesus. But as the old Sunday school song says, they fished all night and they caught no fishes. Seven men, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, John, and two other disciples with nets all night and not one fish. This is pretty much an abysmal failure. Their world has been rocked. They've been following Jesus, assuming he was going to set up a kingdom at some point. And now this crazy and unforeseen set of circumstances has unfolded. He's alive again. They've seen him, but it's thrown them all for a loop. And their attempt to either make a little money or get their minds off their problems has gone downhill completely, fallen off the rails. They caught nothing. Both expectations and hopes disappointed. But this line. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore. They don't recognize him. The disciples knew not that it was Jesus. There was Jesus. After everything that had happened, after all their questions that were largely still unanswered, after they disappointed him and themselves, after they felt like cowards, after their world was toppled and upside down, after all the inconceivable circumstances, and now after their futile fishing attempts and empty nets, there was Jesus. As soon as I read that line, the song, There Was Jesus, came to mind in the waiting and the searching and the healing and the hurting, like a blessing buried in the broken pieces, every minute, every moment, where I've been and where I'm going, even when I didn't know or couldn't see it, there was Jesus. This was a low moment for the disciples, whether on the small scale of they caught no fishes or on the grand scale that they may still have had concerns that their association with Jesus could put their own lives in jeopardy. They are reeling. But there was Jesus. 
I've experienced this so many times. In the lowest moments, the worst days, there was Jesus. When the chaos of unfolding events has been far beyond what my human imagination could have scripted, when I've had those fresh glimpses of my inherent human weakness and my propensity to wander from Him, when the pressure of trials has been nearly unbearable, when my human efforts have been futile, there was Jesus. He showed up time and again. He's been on the shore when my little boat has come back with an empty net and my own expectations and hopes are disappointed. He's been there over and over, time and again. There was Jesus. And Jesus wasn't just there for the disciples, though that is a beautiful comfort on its own. But he does for them what they could not do for themselves. They don't yet recognize this figure on the seashore, but the man says, Children, have ye any meat? They answer him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast, therefore, and now they were not able to draw for the multitude of the fishes when God shows up, smiley face. John tells Peter it's Jesus, and Peter throws his fisherman's coat over his naked body and casts himself into the sea. Read it, it's there, to get to Jesus as quickly as he could. Random note, but stuff like this is why I love Peter. The other disciples follow in a little ship, for they were not too far from land, but as it were 200 cubits, dragging the net with fishes. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of great fishes, a hundred and fifty and three. There was Jesus, and there was miracle power and provision. At his command and their obedience, one hundred and fifty-three fish. I adore the record of this specific number, and I adore this detail. And for all there were so many, yet not was the net broken, yet was not the net broken. In one moment, Jesus did for them what they couldn't do in seven men's efforts for an entire night. Okay, wow, I just realized something. This was not the first time Jesus had miraculously filled their nets. At the very outset of his ministry, Luke 5 records the story of Jesus borrowing Peter's boat to preach in. Peter's at the seashore washing his nets, And Jesus asks if he can thrust out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. When he's done speaking, he looks at Peter and says, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. Peter's response is very reminiscent of the story recorded in John 21. Master, we have toiled all night and have taken nothing. An entire night of fruitless, fishless labor bucking the waves, pulling the nets, only to find them empty. But Peter continues on with a word that will change the story and the rest of his life. Nevertheless, nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. And they beckoned to their ship partners, which were on the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both ships so that they began to sink, laughing. After this, Peter falls down at Jesus' feet, astonished. And Jesus says, Fear not, from henceforth you shall catch men. James and John, his partners, are there too, 
And the passage ends by saying, And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. My mind is blown. This makes John 21 all the more incredible. Jesus performs a mirror miracle with some exceptions in the lives of Peter, James, and John. After a night of fruitless labor, he proved himself to them and gave a call they followed. And now, after all that's transpired, after these things, he does a miracle that is wildly reminiscent of the day they forsook all and followed him. This is mind-blowing. There was Jesus, not only there, not only there with miracle power and provision, but there to recall and recommission and restore after things got crazy, after nothing had gone as expected, after they'd proven weakness instead of strength, after they'd failed him in themselves, there was Jesus. And he wasn't just there with power and miracles and restoration. He was there with breakfast. As soon as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid thereon and bread. Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. Jesus then cometh and taketh the bread and giveth them and fish likewise. There was Jesus. In their incredibly low moment, he was there. He was there for them, period. He was there with miracles, there with the fresh reminder that they were still called, there with provision, and there with breakfast. There was Jesus. In the waiting, in the searching, in the healing, in the hurting, there was Jesus. Okay, this morning when I decided, I just had this little thought like, oh, I should see if any of the other gospels record this story. And I started reading and I realized that Jesus had done almost the same exact miracle when he called them as he does in John 21 literally my mind is blown it is that is so powerful and really just proves this point that he is a god of restoration john 21 continues on and jesus has a very restorative conversation with peter peter's denied him three times and jesus gives him three opportunities to prove his love but john 21 is such a beautiful chapter i would encourage you to get into it and In the famous fasting chapter in Isaiah 58, there's this verse. It says, he's talking about all the benefits of fasting, and then it includes this. And they that be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. Let's be repairers of the breach. Let's be restorers of paths for other people. And if you need restoration, God wants to restore your life. Surrender the pieces, put them in his hand, because he is a God of restoration. Thank you so much for joining me for this journey. I look forward to meeting up with you again next Friday. If you have questions or to download a typed or a handwritten transcript of today's entry, you can visit meganedited.com. For now, go grab your journal and your Bible. I so look forward to the power of this habit in your life. This is unedited. This is for you. Happy, happy Friday.